Hi there. It's Brooke Shields. If you're like me, you know the importance of surrounding yourself with things that bring you joy. And few designers spark more joy than Leslie Evers. All of their textile artworks and print designs are created in-house, and a large portion of the collection is made in California. I love Leslie's colorful pullovers, and with a full range of accessories, there's something on the site for everyone. Leslie Evers offers free shipping on all orders. And this month, you'll receive a unique gift with every purchase. Go spark some joy at leslieevers.com. That's L-E-S-L-E-Y-E-V-E-R-S dot com. What do you do when life doesn't go according to plan? That moment you lose a job or a loved one or even a piece of yourself. I'm Brooke Shields, and this is Now What? a podcast about pivotal moments as told by people who lived them. Each week I sit down with a guest to talk about the times they were knocked off course and what they did to move forward. Some stories are funny. Others are gut-wrenching. But all are unapologetically human and remind us that every success and every setback is accompanied by a choice. And that choice answers one question. Now what? Is it true that we really only use a small portion of our brain? Is that a myth? No, I, I think it's it's mostly a myth. I think the way to think about it is that if if your brain were the United States as a country, you need all those roads, you know, to get from one place to the other. You so you and a lot of the places of your brain are roads. You're not actually in cities at that time. You're just traveling from one place to another, and you need those roads. We use ten percent of our brain. 90% of the time. It's probably how you live in your house. You you may spend most of your time in your living room or your kitchen, probably, if you're like our house. That's where, you know, we're always aggregated in the kitchen. That's kind of how we use our brains. You have other rooms that maybe you don't spend nearly as much time in every now and then, but not that much. So we use our whole brains, but but a very small percentage most of the time. My guest today is one of the smartest people I know, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. He's a neurosurgeon, an Emmy Award-winning journalist, an author, and a husband and father. He's been a medical correspondent for CNN since 2001 and has spent two decades providing us all with thoughtful, approachable insight into the biggest stories in medicine. Like many of you, I turn to him during the COVID-19 pandemic and was always impressed by his calm demeanor and unparalleled intellect. Since 2020, he's hosted the podcast, Chasing Life, where he digs deep into aging, mindfulness, and everything you don't know about the human brain. I loved chatting with him and left our conversation feeling smarter and more empowered. So here is Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Thank you so much for for joining me today. Oh, it's my my pleasure, Brooke. I've really been looking forward to this. Do, do you do you remember that we've actually met once before? Did you two concert? You remember? Oh yeah, yeah. of course I do. <laughs> 
You're, you're not you're not very forgettable. You know that. We had a, <laughs> well, we had a great conversation. I remember st- st- uh, standing up really high, chatting with you, and that was a, a highlight for me. Oh well, <laughs> my highlight. I still talk about it all the time, and I'm a big fan of yours, Brooke, oh. in many different facets of your life. So, just wanted to tell you that. Thank you. And you have you have three daughters, right? I have three daughters, three teenage daughters. When are you going to be an empty nester? Because I'm, I'm that's looming for me. Um, so my youngest is 14. So we have 14, 16, okay. and 18. She's a ninth grader. So I guess, you Ooh. know, four years. Um, we just sent one off to college. How did your wife do with that? You know, I think in some ways she did she did better than I did. I think in part because <laughs> she she was she's so process oriented. Well, she's a lawyer, right? She's a lawyer, yes. And I think <laughs> just just the mom part of her, you know, with the, with all the process of moving into the dorms and you know making mm-hmm. sure everything's all settled. There was just so much process, and I got to sit back. I think a little bit more because I'm very lucky that I I have. You know, Rebecca just takes on so much. But I I think as a result, it was very emotional for me. I kept reflecting on her as a young kid and, you know, just, you know, saying that thing that I always hated hearing when I was a a new dad, that the years fly by. I don't want to hear that. The days are long, the years are short. That's what I was told. Exactly. But you know what is true? Like I got, I was was dealing with the room and the linens and the bedding (laughs) and, and setting up the desk and setting up. So I was able to sort of stay busy. Um, but then when I saw her in the, oh, you'd get choked up in the rear view mirror, (laughs) I, I, my husband said to me, he's like, okay, I have one question for you. He said, when, when you are crying, would you rather cry in an airplane, you know, like a flight or would you rather drive and cry Mm. in the car? Mm. And I said, I can't be around people. (laughs) I was like, I need to cry in the car for eight hours. (laughs) So you guys but drove I, back. We drove back. Yeah. yeah. Do you does does your one daughter who's who's in in college have any idea what she wants to study? Yeah, she does. Um, she so she's at UT Austin, and there's a school there that's called the Moody School. So the the college is made up of a bunch of different schools, different you know um, t- things that they cover and and specialize in. And the Moody School is sort of marketing and advertising. Oh. And that's that's what I think she's really interested in. You know, she's eighteen. How are you supposed to know? You you don't. You know that you th- don't. Well, you can talk to the brain. You can talk about what the brain can and cannot understand at that age. I remember a long time ago, I read this book by Eric Erickson, um, and and he talked about the fact that most adults probably shouldn't make major life decisions until early thirties. And Mm -hmm. he was talking about profession and marriage and just big life decisions. And part of it, you know, I don't, he didn't say this in the book, but part of it is that, you know, our brains to your, to your question, don't, don't really fully develop until mid to late twenties. And so we're asking kids to make these huge decisions about their lives at a very young age. And it's, it's, it's wild, you know, and you know, they're going to change their minds and that's good. It's part of the reason we wanted her at a big school just to have, um, um, you know, lots of things to see and options to choose from. I mean, not, not, I know this is your podcast, but I mean, you raised such no, an I, interesting point. I mean, did now at this point in life, do you reflect and say you would have chosen something different? I can't imagine doing anything different, but it took me a while to find what I love within this industry, and that's comedy. And hmm. I think I knew that in one way or another from the time. I mean, I have a picture of myself at two. <laughs> 
and I am trying to make my daddy laugh. And I could always do that. I could do it from the time I was a little kid. And I would, I just, for some reason, there was something intuitively clownish about me. Part of it was a defense mechanism. Part of it was, oh gosh, a million different things. But that wasn't the way my career went. Yeah. But I do, but I, I, I find that I can't imagine not being a performer in one capacity. And then I read that you were very musical in, when you were in school. Were you like a theater kid as well? Me? Oh, um, yeah. no. I, 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 <laughs> interestingly enough, I played the accordion. I, I took, That's perfect. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> it's, it's, no, I know. It's, it's a source of comedy for sure. But you have to be so uh, agile. You have to use both sides of your brain, right? You have to use both sides of your brain. You have to use both your hands in a blinded way. You can't really see your fingers at all, you know, especially on the left hand, unless you really lean over the wow. instrument. But I'll tell you, the <sighs> funny thing is, is my parents, both immigrants, big Bollywood fans. They, if you listen to Bollywood music, there's a lot of accordion mm -hmm. playing, especially in older Bollywood songs. So when they came to the States, you know, and they had their first son, they were like, he will play the accordion. <laughs> so... And 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 oh, wow. there was no Bollywood accordion playing there, so I was mainly playing polkas and stuff like that for ten years. And it was just a, it was a very discordant scene because a little Indian kid from rural Michigan playing the accordion <laughs> with mostly like these Polish festivals and things like that. That sounds like a Bollywood movie. <laughs> it does. <sound> like <laughs> but so you were from Michigan, yes. And what were you like as a kid? You know, pretty pretty bookish kid. You know, I mm -hmm. have one brother. He's he's um, ten years younger than me. So you know, the the up until whatever fifth grade or so, I was sort of an only child, sixth grade, and and um, really small town in Michigan. Um, pretty pretty rural. You know, my parents both worked for the auto industry, and so that's that that was the Michigan connection. How did that? How does that work? They come. They're immigrants from India. Your mom from. Yes. Uh, was she Pakistan or? So my mom was a, what's called a partition child. She was born in the subcontinent of India before it was subdivided into India and Pakistan. And then during the partition, which was in 1947, she was five years old and she fled, you know, with her family to what is now India. And for the first 12 years of her life, lived as a refugee in, in these camps outside of, outside of, uh, really outside of Mumbai. Um, and I tell you all that because, you know, dur during that time as a refugee, she became really fascinated with, with engineering and the idea that she could one day be an engineer. Even You know, imagine being in a refugee camp in India and saying, I want to be an engineer. Wow. Mostly being told there are no women engineers. But she was the first ever engineer, at female engineer at Ford. She was the first uh, female engineer at Ford. Yes. I mean, that's groundbreaking and what an example and how amazing it, it, it is it's totally amazing and we grew up with it you know and 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 it's certainly part of our family's story it it never stops being amazing like when we think about it uh, you know and even in today's world the idea of of just overcoming those sorts of challenges and becoming the first at something it was hard back then you know it's still hard now to to do that i will tell you brooke it is interesting growing up with a mom like that because there's no i can't do something right, <laughs> right. You, you don't get to yeah. say that you you can't do that like i was a refugee in a camp in yeah. india and i traveled by boat and you know all, all this sort of stuff and so 
she she's a really uh, she's a really remarkable woman. Great grandmother now. She has five granddaughters. My brother has two wow. daughters. We have three, and uh, it's just it's it's remains amazing and fun. Did that uh, was that a source of pressure or encouragement for you <laughs> as a kid? That's a great question. I I um it was it was a it was a healthy pressure. I would say it was definitely definitely a. I mean, I think that if your parents have sacrificed that much to live in this country to try and make the best that they can of things, you feel a certain sense of obligation, I think, as, a, as an immigrant's, uh, immigrant family's child to, to live up to that. It wasn't overt. That's why I say it's healthy. It wasn't, mm-hmm. hey, we sacrifice so much, therefore you have to do X, Y, Z, but you felt it. But it's interesting because I do feel like our family's experiences really do, they shape us. How can they not? Um, but your mom also, she had, I mean, she experienced trauma as as well, right? I mean, just the trauma of does she have did she have siblings? Yep, she has um, she has three siblings. Um, she had other siblings that were older than her that didn't that did not survive. Um, so she oh. yeah, there's look, there's there's trauma, you know, and it's funny one thing, Brooke, and this this still surprises me about my mom is that. She would rather not talk about that stuff. And 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 that's not that surprising. But what is surprising, I think, is that there's almost a sense of embarrassment about it. Like, it's almost like, you know, I don't want to show you m- my dirty house or invite you over with my, my, you know, dirty laundry. It's just, it's like the person who falls down the stairs and pops right back up. Oh, I'm, not, I'm fine. Not I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm fine. Good, I'm, good. Fine. I'm fine. It's kind of like that, but extended to her, her life in a way. And it's something I don't think I realized until... I was much older myself about her and and could think about things more, I think, from her point of view. Like I ask her about some of these things and she'll say to me, is this something that you're going to tell the girls, meaning my daughters? Oh, and wow. and I say, well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that they should. And she's like, I don't I just don't think you should tell them this stuff. And and so oh. it's not that there is a some for some people, there's a badge of is honor. Is that cultural? Is it cultural or is it? Maybe it's cultural. I mean, I do know other partition folks from around her her age group that talk about it quite openly. But I think I think it's more personal. Like my mom had cancer several years ago, and she didn't want people to know that either. I think there is this. I think if you've lived the life of a refugee, where so much of your life ends up having to be transactional. I mean, that's how you survive in a refugee camp. Um, then you you don't. You're, you're, you're a little reluctant to show those vulnerabilities about yourself. Hi there, Brooke Shields here. If you're like me, you know the importance of surrounding yourself with things that bring you joy. And few designers spark more joy than Leslie Evers. All of their textile, artworks, and print designs are created in-house. And a large portion of the collection is made in sunny California. I love Leslie's cozy and colorful pullovers. And with a full range of accessories and home decor, there's something on the site for everyone. Leslie Evers offers free shipping on all orders. That's big. And this month, with every purchase, you'll receive a unique gift based on your order value. So what are you waiting for? Visit leslieevers.com and pick out something joyful today. That's L-E-S-L-E-Y-E-V-E-R-S.com. I call this podcast, Now What? 
because it's about pivotal moments in our lives. Yeah. You know, it's about those moments where you ask yourself, oh my God, now what do I do? Mm. And I'm faced with this and they're pivotal moments. And I'm fascinated by why some people stay laying down, lying down. <laughs> I did go to college, I promise. <laughs> and, uh, and others bounce right back up. And is there an element in the brain mm -hmm. that you've seen that's consistent as to why people become, uh, allow themselves to see themselves as victims versus see themselves as survivors or, or, or warriors? I, I absolutely think there is, you know, and this is something that I've, I've thought a lot about. I mean, I, I would, I would maybe um, widen the aperture a little bit and to say that I think there are some people who, when confronted with the daily events of our world and, and just all the stuff that's going on, there are some people who are just crushed by that, seemingly paralyzed by that. Whether or not they see themselves as the victim, it's overwhelming. And there are other people who mm. are almost strengthened by it. it, like you would if you were to think about it metaphorically, like going to the gym and getting a good workout. And yes, it was hard to push the weight or whatever you were doing, but now you're stronger as a result, if you were to think of the brain that way. And I think mm -hmm. the, the core ingredient, and a lot of people have written about this, is, is this idea of, of resilience of the brain of, and, and to uh, expand on that to say the redundancy in the brain. Do you have more redundancy to be able to handle these things? Um, and I think that makes a big difference, you know, and, and it's not that you necessarily need to keep going through trauma and build up some tolerance to the trauma. It is if your brain is a brain that is doing lots of different things, um, you tend to build more brain cells and have more redundancy and thus more resilience. And when you're confronted with something, you, you, you're not crushed by it. You may even be strengthened by it. How did you decide to become a brain surgeon? You know, it, it, um, I, nobody in my family is a doctor or a brain surgeon. Most of my colleagues, that was sort of their, their trajectory. They had, you know, people in their, in their parents or somebody. But for me, um, my, my mom's dad got sick when I was around 13 years old, had had a stroke, and, um, we we're very close. And I would spend a lot of time with them in the hospital at that point. And I think it was the first time I sort of realized that, um, like going into medicine could be a, a good, profession. My, my parents are both engineers. And so the expectation, my dad's a mathematician, was the expectation was that I'd go into engineering or, or some math or something like that. Going into medicine, to be honest, was pretty expensive, you know, to, to make that commitment to go to medical school and everything. So, but I think around that age, I sort of thought about it for the first time. And, and with my grandfather and the stroke, I became very interested in the brain. You know, he had this really interesting thing that happened to him during his stroke, which is that he could he could write fine, he could mm. speak fine, but he could not understand. In fact, he could write something and not read what he just wrote. And I remember yeah. thinking, like, even as a pretty, you know, a teenager at that point, that that's, that's wild that the brain wow. does that. And it, I think it was, it sort of ignited a little bit of, something in terms of just trying to read a lot about the brain and becoming increasingly interested in it. I didn't think neurosurgery was going to be the path initially, you know, because it's, it's seemed too intense, to be honest with you, seven years of training after medical school. But um, mm. as I got closer and closer, I thought to myself, you know what, I think I could do this. 
and I guess a stroke. My mother had a stroke as well, where she had like sort of a series of mini strokes. Mm -hmm. And she started not being able to really, her verbal communication changed, but she started um, singing. Oh, interesting. In this like kind of beautiful almost like a falsetto. And I mean, you know, of course it was creepy to me because she would call me and sing and I'd be (laughs) like, you're creeping me out, mom. But that was, it was such an interesting shift um, in her um, that I find, uh, you know, that was sort of when you talked about your your grandfather. What do you think that the most, I mean, what have you discovered as the most interesting aspect or striking thing about operating on a brain, an actual brain, like you're holding it. (laughs) It's wild. It's the, it's, the brain is the most um, enigmatic three and a half pounds of flesh in the known universe. And I think about it every time I operate on it because, you know, going back to sort of this idea of being process oriented, when you're operating, you have a, you have a thing that you're trying to do, you know, remove a brain tumor or put a clip around an aneurysm or whatever it might be. But when you sit back and just look at the brain sometimes, I think one of the things that still strikes me about the brain is that it's it's so delicate. Like, I I, I don't know. I I feel like, you know, we're we're used to like the very important things in our life we're going to like really make tough and protected. So like when you actually touch the brain, it feels like like a piece of shrimp cocktail, you know? It's it's so soft and and I may never eat shrimp cocktail I know, again. I know that was way, that was not thank, a good visual. Thank you. Sorry about thank that. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> for but all I the shellfish allergies out there. <laughs> they they're all brain surgeons. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's just you you think it would put up more of a fight um in some ways to protect itself. But um it's 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 still I I love doing it, um, performing brain surgery. I think there's a real um you know, you go to school for a long time, but there's also sort of a, a real physical component to it. Um, you know, I have one a daughter who's a dancer, and she's just so focused on her dancing moves, and she's so good at that sort of stuff. I had to, I'm I'm not naturally so so, you know, I had I had to practice a lot with my hands, but I love that physical aspect of of it as well, and that still is is a source of great joy for me after all these years. How do you develop? the instincts that you need to make those very difficult decisions. I, that, that can be one of the, mo- the most challenging parts of things. You're right, Brooke. I mean, I think um, in, in some cases to operate or, or not operate is very clear. You know, someone has had a, a recent trauma and now needs to decompress their brain or a type of tumor that can be resected that could, you know, dramatically prolong their life. All, all that sort of stuff is is very clear. But sometimes it's not as clear. You're not sure that someone's going to have a good outcome. And, you know, having those conversations with your patients in a very honest and hopeful way, you can balance hope and honesty. You know, a lot of times, you know, the idea of hope is, is I think, given short shrift. But people who have hope, they tend to do better. You know, they tend to have better outcomes. But finding that balance, and I, and I will tell you that, you know, I train uh, residents and medical students, and they're younger than I am. I have three teenagers. I have parents who are in their 80s now. I think I have a different worldview. I, I truly imagine, like, my mom's a very healthy 80-year-old. A lot of times you hear, oh, persons come into the hospital 80 years old with such and such. And you think, oh, 80 years old, that's that's old. Well, if that were my mom, 
she's she's driving she's totally independent she has a really play shuffleboard has a really joyful life like i would totally operate on that whereas the instinct might be you know is there should there be an age cutoff i'm just using that as an example yeah. but i think as you get older as as i've been doing this a long time now that judgment that you're asking about i think ends up becoming probably the most important thing because the surgical skills i you know you, i've been i did 7 years of training i did a year of fellowship i've been doing this for the last 20 years all the time you know that part is less of a concern than it is just the judgment do you have any now what moments yourself in or an era or times where you've just really said wow what am i positive or or negative um yeah, I, I think I've I've had a, I've had a lot, you know. I I think um, on a professional level, I think this this idea of straddling two worlds of medicine, which is my still my first and truest love professionally, and then the media world, and and saying is this something that I could could add to that or do as well, I think was a really significant moment. I came to that sort of midlife or mid career, I should say. You know, I was in my early thirties at that point, and so to add something that I had never done before <laughs> to your life and, and also have it be something that is, that is, um, uh, very public, you know, you know, I was yeah. again, uh, Indian kid living in rural Michigan who, you know, really did not have ever have those kinds of experiences or interactions with people to do television. That was a, that was an interesting pivot. And when I started, I thought I was going to be mainly talking about health policy because I had written a lot about health policy and I started in August of 2001, Brooke, and three and a half weeks later, 9-11 happened. And so they just hired a guy to mainly a doc to do health policy commentary, probably mostly on the Sunday shows. And now they said, hey, we're probably not going to be talking about that for a while, considering what's happening in the world. But now you're a doc working at an international news network in the middle of this. And then and then all the things, you know, I... I, I Covered the war in Afghanistan, covered the war in Iraq, you know, anthrax, covered just about every major conflict that have that has happened over the last 21 years and 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 natural disasters and pandemics. And that was never sort of the original plan. So I think that now what moment when they first said this, you know, you know, also I had this new practice in neurosurgery, you know, that I was and can you do this? <laughs> and I had and I and I was, you know, had young children. So, you know, all, all of that was sort of happening at the same time. But I think professionally that was it. And then personally, I mean, you know better than anyone. I mean, <laughs> having kids is, I, I think a lot of people who are neurosurgeons never have families. Um, you know, you spend most of your life huh. during your formative years um, uh, training, you know, and back then it was 100 yeah. hours a week. So, you know, trying to put another person or people through that with you is, is, a, is a big ask. So that was, that was a, you know, like, wow, I've, I have children now. That that was sort of an amazing, I, I, for a good chunk of my life, did not think that was going to happen. And huh. um, here we are. And then, <laughs> and then you get three girls. I got girls. three girls, yeah. Oh, my God. Yes. I mean, Cue the that, laugh track that, whenever I say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they are honestly the most, the, they bring me to my knees more, more often than not. And then they surprise me with their capacity for love and yeah. and and caring and and all of that. Um, <laughs> switching a little bit, you are in your seventh season of Chasing Life. Yes. Can you 
talk a little bit about the premise of that show? And So um, Chasing Life actually originally started uh, during the pandemic, and it was more of a an opportunity, to the podcast. And I don't know how, how much prep time you got when you started your podcast, but I was called on a Friday and said, can you start Monday? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I have a wonderful producer who keeps uh keeps me abreast so to speak of of things that I can that I can do while I'm traveling and and get as much cuz I love homework so I'm a big you know homework homework person but but maybe that's the maybe that's the way you thrive you know well, you clearly thrive on your feet <laughs> I would I I would have liked a little bit more time to be totally honest but I love podcasting I love podcasts I I um I listen to podcasts, I I think there's a real intimacy about it. I the the basic gist of chasing life is that kind of what you were talking about. Um, the body is this amazing thing. Um, it can heal itself really well, and it can be optimized in ways that we haven't fully appreciated. Um, a lot of the reason we're not optimized is because we do things to our bodies that are bad as opposed to not doing things. So it's as much about seeing these cultures around the world where people live, the, live these really healthy, happy, long lives, what we can learn from them. Um, and, you know, traveling around the world and, and really immersing myself in those cultures. That was a lot of chasing life. This season, I've decided to, in some ways, go back to my roots all about the brain. And mm-hmm. every episode is something blank brain, meaning the motivated brain, the attentive brain, the depressed brain, um, whatever it might be, and and trying to figure out like with what we know now about the brain, which is a lot more than people realize, with what we know now, how can you create a more attentive brain? And that's what I really wanted to focus on. And selfishly, whenever, like you, I love homework. And so I learn a lot, even though I'm a neurosurgeon, how to, you know, protect my brain against some of the daily challenges we were talking about earlier, how to make the more resilient brain. There's real information out there that I think can be helpful to people. One of the things I was I, I love about your podcast is that you interviewed your parents <laughs> and you asked them what advice um, that they would give to their 25, I think it was, year old selves. Um, so I would just like to ask you that question. Mm. What advice would you give your 25-year-old self? I think that uh, it's a, you know, it's funny. I didn't really think about that for myself. I was thinking about it for my parents. But, you know, I, I think that, that what I would basically say is that there are things that I paid a lot of attention to that did not end up being that important in my life. I, I, I over tilted towards certain things, thinking that they were going to be these huge important things that were going to dictate how my life would go for good or for bad. And they weren't. And I probably knew that at the time. And there were probably things that I wish I had paid more attention to as well. And so it's it's hard to know when you're 25. It's hard to get yourself in that headspace. If you really sit down and think about it, you probably can figure it out. But the other thing is that, you know, I have people in my life who who are sort of frame shifted from me about 20 years. You know, my parents are 
bit older than that. The, the age gap is a little bit more. But I spend a lot of time talking to people who are 15 to 20 years older than me and just be like, hey, man, is this, is this my overdoing it on this thing? Tell me. And he's going to be like, dude, you're not even going to remember that two years from now. You, you won't even think about it again. I guarantee it. And, 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 and here I am obsessed with, like, I don't even know what it might be, some simple thing, you know, um, mm-hmm. whether it be about my kid's school or finances or, you know, whatever it might be. And, and just getting that, that constant perspective. So I would give myself that advice. Really reflect on what you think is going to be important. Be honest about that. Um, and talk to people who are older than you. <laughs> and benefit from their wisdom. Well, I, I love your podcast. And I'm learning about, I had very Thank severe you. postpartum. And the, when I understood the bio chemical what was happening in my brain when i looked at it from a brain perspective yes. from a hormonally and from the first time in my life not being able to power through something that was what was freeing so i think that what one of the things your podcast this season in particular is doing is that it's that type of information is liberating to people well, I look. I I really uh no. Well, thank you for for saying that, Brooke. I mean, I but I I I remember you talking about your postpartum quite a bit, and I wanted to tell you that you know I I don't around that time um I I thought it was a, an opportunity because you were talking about it to try and educate the 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 um, audience about these issues. And one of the studies that I showed, and this is a long time ago now, and we know how the girls have grown right since that time. Yep. But yeah, one of the studies that came out right around that time was a study that actually imaged the brain functionally. And and it was so fascinating because you saw something that we had never seen before. And it showed that in someone who was depressed, that their frontal lobes of their brain, the judgment areas of your brain, were completely fired up, okay? Mm. And your amygdala, which is your emotional center of the brain, was really kind of cold, less functional, which meant you were kind of like in a cocoon and and nothing came out because the frontal lobe was basically saying, that's dumb. Don't do that. I'm overly judging everything that you did. And what was interesting is in people who then were treated, you did see functionally within the brain a change, less activity in those areas and more activity. I mean, and, the, and it was so interesting because we had no, there's no biomarker for depression. There's no blood test or anything. That was the first time we objectively could see what depression looked like in the brain and see objective evidence of it actually being treated, which was fascinating to me. That was Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Go check out his podcast, Chasing Life, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. That's it for us today. Talk to you next week. Now What with Brooke Shields? is a production of iHeartRadio. Our lead producer and wonderful showrunner is Julia Weaver. Additional research and editing by Darby Masters and Abu Zafar. Our executive producer is Christina Everett. The show is mixed by Bahid Frazier. Hi there. It's Brooke Shields. If you're like me, you know the importance of surrounding yourself with things that bring you joy. And few designers spark more joy than Leslie Evers. All of their textile artworks and print designs are created in-house, and a large portion of the collection is made in California. 
I love Leslie's colorful pullovers. And with a full range of accessories, there's something on the site for everyone. Leslie Evers offers free shipping on all orders. And this month, you'll receive a unique gift with every purchase. Go spark some joy at leslieevers.com. That's L-E-S-L-E-Y-E-V-E-R-S dot com. 